Hey, y'all. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance. Um, this is a out-of-ordinary bonus episode for you. Uh, my name is Reverend MJ Kaiser. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, and you might have just heard me on an episode a few days ago um, where I covered the first Sunday of Lent and the Matthew 4 text. Uh, this bonus episode is a product of a mistake I made. <laughs> um, I had not integrated yet the fact that uh, throughout Lent we are focusing um, on anti uh, disrupting anti-Judaism and disrupting anti-Semitism in the text, uh, which is what I focused on in the Matthew text. Uh, but I had already um, had a conversation with a guest uh, before I had pieced that together uh, regarding the Genesis episode. And my time with him was uh, delightful. And so I just want to make sure that that message still gets uh, in front of you in case you want to tune in to uh, his thoughts on the Genesis story. Uh, so this is a, a condensed episode today, uh, and we're going to just cut right to uh, the text um, but first, I do just want to mention that um, we do this work remembering that we are building up a new world. Uh, and the live recording that you, you will soon hear is of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement. Uh, and it's a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I would like to introduce my dear friend and colleague who will be thinking through the text with me today. Um, welcome Reverend Dr. Tyler Schwaller. Uh, Tyler is a friend, a comrade, a companion whom I deeply love and respect. He has been on the board of Enfleshed since our beginnings in 2017, and we have shared many a time and space of causing good trouble together in the church over the years. Um, more formally, Tyler is the Student Equity Officer and Title IX Coordinator for the Portland, Maine Public Schools, where he helps facilitate trauma-informed responses to reports of discrimination and harassment. This work is informed by substantial experience resisting anti-queer policies and practices in the United Methodist Church, including as an advocate throughout oppressive complaint processes. Before coming to Portland, Tyler served as Assistant Professor of Religious Studies and Chaplain at Wesleyan College in Macon, Georgia. His scholarly expertise is in New Testament and early Christianity, with particular research interests in ancient slavery and its legacies, sex, gender, and sexuality, and the ethics of biblical interpretation. Tyler is grateful for deep, life-giving friendships and community forged in spite of the soul-crushing conditions of the church and academy, and he is especially thankful for increasing freedom from such spaces, enjoying a post-Methodist, post-university life on the picturesque Peaks Island with his husband, Will, and their dog, Allison. 
Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a delight to have you here on the podcast, The Word is Resistance. Thank you so much, Em. I'm so grateful to join you in this conversation, especially in thanks for all of the ways that I've learned um, from and with you, um, both reading texts and uh, doing extra biblical stuff. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, great. Well, I'm going to read our text for today and then we'll we'll dive in and all right. See what happens. Okay. Uh, this is a reading from Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17, and chapter three, verses one through seven. God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And God commanded the man. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be destined to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So, <laughs> um, this is a juicy text, and uh -huh. I see ethics of good and evil. I see gender. I see sexuality. I see questions of work and labor. I see uh, human uh, and animal relationships and human and plant relationships. And then a lot of interesting questions about divinity and divinity's intentions, God's intentions in this text. Um, so it just feels like it's overflowing with potential. And I wonder what immediately grabs you. Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, there's so much. And I think at first, when I was um, reviewing the text for this first Sunday in Lent, I was thinking, ugh, the Genesis story, it's like original sin. This is, there are so many bad ways that people use this so-called original sin, let's say. Right, that. right, yeah. Um, uh, so I wasn't naturally inclined to think about it, but then I remembered uh, some of the history of interpretation from early Christians. Mm. And it gets at this question of God's intention, like mm. you highlighted. Um, so growing up being familiar with this text, I think because of the ways that uh, biblical interpretations just get handed on as if they're self-evident. It was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know the story. Uh, but it was actually learning um, some of the pretty strange early Christian interpretations of this text um, that 
I realized, wait a minute, we should be asking further questions that that the text like begs us to ask and actually gives some maybe bad answers to that early Christians were attuned to and wanted to think about differently. So um, in particular, um, because of some of these early interpretations that I'll, you know, we can talk about some examples of, but um, this point that, that God says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why not? Like, yeah, yeah. Knowing good and evil, shouldn't we know what good and evil are if the point is like <laughs> to be um, ethical subjects in the world and to respect creation? It's like, man, this feels like the point. We should know good and evil. Um, so early Christians were attentive to that aspect of the text and really um, building on Jewish traditions of Midrash and being able to ask questions of the text and sort of lean into some of those gaps and to tell the stories more expansively, which actually is in some ways to tell the stories differently. Um, People came up with pretty wild ways of thinking about how this could possibly make sense. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I don't want to just like go on and on and on, but uh, yeah, it feels like a provocative place to leave it. So one text, for instance, um, is the hypostasis of the archons, which is sometimes translated as the reality of the rulers. Uh, this is one of these texts that was found at Nag Hammadi. So um, in a jar, you know, in Egypt that was uh, probably hidden um, at a, period where um, where uh, people were trying sort of so-called Orthodox Christians were trying to control what was being read. And so thankfully people were like, okay, we're gonna like hide away these texts. And I think it was in 1945 or thereabouts that they were discovered. So the Gospel of Thomas was one of these that was also there. Um, anyway, if anyone's interested in reading the text, um, it's pretty, it's so um, dense that like, huh? Yeah, read it for yourself, but like also be prepared to have no idea what it's saying because it's (laughs) bizarre, um, which is part of the fun. So um, for those who don't know, a good resource for reading early Christian Christian texts is earlychristianwritings.com. So that's a place where you can find this. Um, But just a very brief sketch. Um, In one respect, this sort of mode of interpretation takes the text literally, it, it, mm. it works within the confines of the story. And it's mm. like, all right, if the text is saying, God says, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, let's try to make sense of why God would say that. Um, what's fascinating is that the way the story is retold um, undermines the God of the text and says, actually there's a higher reality. Um, and this is coming from pretty active cosmologies that imagine the cosmos as um, as um, animated by uh, divine beings um, that are sort of marked by wisdom. This is also connected with this idea of Gnosticism's knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the ways that Gnosticism gets critiqued is that it's esoteric. And this would be one of these texts that it's like, yeah, who could possibly make sense of this? Uh, but like the underlying spirit of it is really so incredible. And that is to say, 
um, we can ask questions of the text. And when we read it and we think it does not make sense for God to make this command, well, maybe the answer is that this isn't the God that we should be following. Um, so the way the story starts out is by imagining these rulers in the, the realm above, um, the realm of incorruptibility and uh, their divine pairings. It's a something that an interesting feature of these texts is they're marked in some ways by binary gender. So there are these divine pairings that are male and female, but they also sort of challenge or undermine um, conceptions of patriarchal gender because they're dependent on um, on sort of male and female together and sort of like in mm. and beyond each other. Um, so Sophia, uh, um, a, a divine divine being um, connected with the Greek word uh, wisdom. Um, so Sophia looks at the realm below and um, uh, wants to create for herself. In some ways, I feel like she's just like bored and she's like, <laughs> I want to create something and I don't need, you know, a male partner to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so she tries to create and the text describes uh, that created uh, the creation as a as an aborted fetus, um, oh. actually. And that falls to the realm below and um, becomes uh, a ruler, Yaldabaoth, who is connected with the God of Genesis. So here's where we get to the God in Genesis, but this God in Genesis is essentially like a defective being, not fully divine. Okay. Um, so Yaldabaoth and other rulers, and this is where the text name comes from, the, the reality of the rulers, hypothesis of the archons, rulers. Um, so these rulers, um, see Sophia's reflection in the water and they're just enamored of it. And they want to, as um, rulers are want, they want to dominate that image. Mm. And, but they can't because it's just a reflection. So they try to create something that they can control. And so this is then tells the story of the creation of humans out of dirt. Uh, but because the humans are created out of clay and they don't possess any spirit, um, they're just like, limp entities. Um, so Sophia breathes breath, uh, divine breath into the clay and animates um, human life. And so what's interesting about that is that humans then possess the spirit of the divine within themselves that actually is lacking from the God of Genesis. Wow. And these other yeah. <laughs> so it's like a really radical notion that completely undermines the God of Genesis, but it also is like making sense of Genesis by saying, this doesn't make sense. There has to be a deeper reality. Um, and then just sort of like quickly summarizing the rest of the story, it's it really is this power struggle and it's a gendered power struggle because these rulers who are masculine beings, so to speak, um, are trying to dominate then the human because they uh, recognize what actually in the text is referred to as the feminine spiritual principle. So the spirit from Sophia. Um, and th uh, there's actually some sort of violent aspects of the text because I mean, they're trying to seek to dominate um, the creation and the feminine spiritual principle leaves, um, leaves from Eve 
and goes into a tree at this moment that they're trying to possess her. And so then laughs at the people and says, or laughs at the rulers and says like, you're so dumb, you don't even know, like you, you haven't actually dominated the spirit. Um, and then the, so now humans are just sort of wandering around without the spirit because it's left um, mm-hmm. some ways to protect itself, but then leaving humans vulnerable. So the serpent in the story then actually functions as a character that is trying to remind people of the divine uh, that that is the basis for their existence. Wow. And the serpent is doing what in Genesis the serpent does, which is to say, actually, you should eat of that tree, because the fruit, because you will know the truth of your being. And of course, the rulers don't want you to know that because um, that will show that you're superior, that you actually possess the divine that comes from the realm of incorruptibility. Um, mm. Yeah, so then the, the text can sort of like trails off and it kind of vaguely um, points then to Jesus as a future person within this line who points people back to this spiritual truth. Yeah, so it's this really beautiful text that reminds people of the divine that is is our birthright um, yeah. and like is is how we are created in the image and likeness and like the breath of God, like all of the aspects of Genesis that are there, but it points us to some of the ways that the text, now I would say in its interpretive tradition can be then used like like the God of Genesis that's being critiqued from Hypostasis of the Archons, that the text then can be used to dominate. And so in some ways, like doing this kind of reading can point us back toward the truths that we know when we read the text and we're like, um, this doesn't make sense. Um, and then one other thing I'll share and then let's just like talk about whatever. Um, uh, uh, another reason that I really love this text is I first learned it in a class with Karen King at Harvard Divinity School. And she once was teaching about this text to a group, I believe of Presbyterian clergy women. Mm-hmm. And within this group, um, women were struck by the power of this retelling to point out the evil of domination um, mm-hmm. and to highlight the sort of power of the feminine spiritual principle, mm-hmm. you know, this and, in an era of like the sort of like feminine spirituality as a as a prime sort of feminist religious movement. Yeah. Um, but so they were struck by the power of the text, but also the fact that um, they were bothered by the fact that the feminine spiritual principle never um, is reunited with Eve's body. Um, so mm-hmm. there is this, this sort of loss. And so they then engage in this poetic retelling of the retelling mm-hmm. where they imagine biblical women, um, you know, trained in mourning, um, mm-hmm. who gather together around the body of Eve and they call upon the spirit um, to, to be reunited and to bring healing to the body um, and to bring body and spirit together. Um, I wish I could point people to where that was publicly available, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's like an obscure text that would be hard to get people's hands on. But, um, but it's this, what I love about it is it represents a very Christian practice of, um, and this is deeply connected with Jewish practices um, from whom I think our Christian ancestors learned um, a very um, important practice of reading scripture 
um, with a critical lens that allows us to ask questions and then to retell stories in ways that make sense with our experience of the divine, because as I think this story points us towards, um, is is a part of our own um, connection to God that we we have divine wisdom through which to read mm -hmm. and through which to resist the sort of yeah. domination of texts and the domination of bodies, especially through texts. Yeah, and resist a God that is framed as a dominating deity. <clears throat> yeah. Gosh, and I mean, thank you. I, I had never heard that before. And so I am just, my mind is kind of exploding in five different directions. And I love that. That's really powerful. And I'm thinking about the serpent getting the bad rap over all these years. Right, yep. <laughs> And yep. the way that that feeds into the colonizing uh, domination of animals and treating them as less moral beings, as has happened for a lot of different reasons, but certainly the Bible has been used to justify that. Um, yep. And I'm thinking about, I can't remember what Psalm, maybe you know, but the Psalm that talks about Sophia being there at the beginning uh, with God creating um, and so I'm hearing that relationship a little differently now through the story. Right. And I think um, ancient people of faith in really in all of the Abrahamic traditions just had such a richer understanding of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So even as obviously key to the biblical narrative is this idea of one God, but that one God is amidst so many sort of divine beings, you know, mm. angels, demons, including like not just um, demons, but uh, this Greek word daimones, which refers to like um, spiritual entities, so to speak, that that instruct and sometimes like might be experiences kind of tricky. And that's mm. where like this this sort of turn to demon as a problem comes into play. But like in some ways, it's just a more playful way to thinking about the cosmos. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you say more about like if somebody's hearing what you're saying and thinking like I don't understand? You know, we have science, we have access to different tools uh, to like think about the cosmos in a very particular way, and also like demons. I don't believe in demons. Like, how would you explain what you mean? as you talk about a richer cosmos? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I'd just be like, don't worry about it. The point is not <laughs> literally to think about like the substance of mm -hmm. angels or demons or divine beings. Um, but I think in some ways stories become a way just of making meaning. And mm -hmm. when I think about a richer cosmos, like honestly, for me, I don't necessarily need to imagine that or want, I don't even know, I guess, what it would mean to imagine that literally, um, mm -hmm. nor do I think it lacks truth or it's just like all made up. Like you know, there's no scientific basis. So therefore, you know, it's all just sort of, hokey nonsense, um, I think it's just like a reflection of the very 
um, beautiful gift of storytelling and mm -hmm. the creativity that it takes to make sense of our lives and the complexity mm -hmm. of not just human relations, but our relation to the natural world. And, and just the wonder that like, I don't know, with, you know, the new telescope and <laughs> clearly I haven't been following closely enough to like remember names. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I like I deeply appreciate science, but also don't really, I am not well-versed, but like these new images of the universe that like we're seeing in new ways. It's like, so extraordinary that I don't know how do you make sense of that other than to like just be in awe and wonder and to tell to tell stories to create art to just feel it all together yeah yeah I love yeah to make art about it uh thinking of text as art is um yeah, not what many of us are trained to do with the scriptures. Um, but I think like you and the work you and others have done with and through and fleshed is sort of bringing vitality to scriptures by by making these connections and being creative and playful with words and images. And mm -hmm. um, that just all feels so much more enlivening to me than... And like, what's the one meaning of this text? Yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah, and I love another thing that really, <laughs> I feel like I'm already convinced of this. And, and so I love when there's like opportunities to be like, oh, I see it there now too, you know? <laughs> um, but in thinking about uh, Jesus as one who points us back to divinity within us, not who takes on the singular role of divinity um, wow. as we're often taught Jesus is. Um, the way that you're, the telling of the story as you just shared with us does that, does a like, I think that's what I heard you saying is like, then the story is that then Jesus is like, hey, remember? Yeah. And some of these texts, I think this is why they get hidden away because I, they come under attack by a, church sort of infrastructure that is building and then um, through Const the emperor Constantine and afterward as Christianity becomes the religion of empire, there's like this capacity to use Christianity and its traditions, especially through the Bible to control. Um, and so like, this is an intense period of like saying, this is, this is what is allowable to read part of it. I mean, this is going on another sort of tangent, but um, something interesting as I, and I remember doing my doctoral exams and trying to learn about the process of canonization, which I assumed mm -hmm. was this sort of thing that was like, okay, at this moment, these texts get defined as the Bible. Um, mm -hmm. But I also had never learned that up until that point. So I was like, oh, I'm finally going to learn that. But then really what I learned is like, there is no, this is the moment that happens because there wasn't. Um, and um, what made me just think about that is that some of the early lists as um, people like Eusebius, an early church historian, were saying, we're sort of like classifying texts and what eventually sort of becomes the basis for the New Testament, um, they actually sort out different categories. Like these are texts that are considered like sacred scripture, but mm -hmm. these are also texts that 
are worth um, reading, are edifying, that like don't end up in the Bible, that now we would be like, well, you know, the shepherd of Hermas, I've never heard of that. That's not in the Bible. Like I reject it. But actually you know, there are early Christian leaders who are like, no, you should read this in your congregations, teach each other. And then, you know, this is where the power struggle comes in. There are people who say, these are texts you shouldn't read. Yeah. And um, connected with what you were sharing, the Gospel of Thomas is one of those, you know, also mm -hmm. one of these texts that was at Nag Hammadi. Um, and I think part of it is this different way of thinking about Jesus, that in the Gospel of Thomas, salvation doesn't come because Jesus died um, mm -hmm. and sort of like masculinely produces salvation on behalf of everyone, right. but that that salvation comes through Jesus in the sense that Jesus points us toward the truth that we know within ourselves, the divine that's within us. And there's this lovely passage that says something like, if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. If you do bring forth what is within you, it will save you. But then, yeah, then it's wow. like, wait a minute, what's in me? You know, yeah. it's another way of pointing back toward the divine within each of us, right. which in, which can go in dangerous directions, yep, yep. hyper-individualized, yep. but that's also part of the Gospel of Thomas message saying the kingdom of God is within you and it is outside of you. Like, you know, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, right, right. I, I <laughs> Maybe this is unfair to pitch you off the, like, unexpectedly, but like, can you speak to how that benefits white supremacy, the way that we have been so taught not to understand Christ within us, but only one figure apart from us? Yeah, I mean, it it, it makes it, I think, easier to dehumanize because mm -hmm. there's no sort of essential sense of the worth of humanity as divine. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, one of my areas of interest um, studying slavery and its legacies, um, that question makes me think of an example where uh, interpretations that get passed down just as self-evident are like literally made up. We can see in history where they come to be. So like the um, Philemon, which often gets read as being about a runaway slave. The text doesn't say that Onesimus is enslaved person has run away. There's no, there's literally nothing in the text that makes that demands that reading. Mm. You can you can come up with that reading, but like, but you don't have to. And like, there's an, um, but Origen in the fourth century um, puts forward. No, it wasn't Origen. I think it was John Chrysostom. <laughs> Sorry, now I'm like getting a little I'm getting a little rusty. Um, but anyway, there's this book where I think it's Chrysostom who who says that there are people, um, he actually calls it a matter of violence, that there are Christians who are teaching that enslaved people should be freed. Mm. And um, that he calls that a matter of violence because he's saying that is taking the right away from um, slaveholders to master you know, their, their property. And so like, that's only possible if you are able to delineate humanity in a way that that like if if you understand the divine in every single person like you can't make that argument or you're like it's a major affront to right. the divine and like 
he reads Philemon in this way to say, like, this is an example of Paul saying, you know, that the, it's the enslaved person who's the problem. He's run away. And Paul's the hero who, like, brings him back and, like, restores order. And, yeah. you know, and these Christians who are trying to disrupt that order are the problem. And it's like, whoa. And he's making this reading up. Like, and but then that becomes the dominant reading. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of why I'm so interested in the history of biblical interpretation is we can see these moments where readings are crystallized in ways that serve power and domination and then they get passed down as self-evident and then when then it's like this you know generations of gaslighting that that when people are resisting these interpretations they're like well no you don't take the bible seriously uh with that said and as we we'll kind of wrap things up here, uh, even though I could talk to you about this for the next yeah. two hours. Um, <laughs> but I do, I wonder if we might end by returning to the text. And um, I don't know, I guess I feel like, what does it look like for you these days to practice your own freedom and engaging with a text like this? Like, is there anything here in this scripture that speaks to you, whether it's in a like, by making you clearer what you don't think, <laughs> mm. or by like, oh, there's something here that maybe um, reminds me who I am, or reminds me what the what I think about the world, or yeah, is it in the freedom that you feel to not just take on the compulsory interpretations? What's there for you? Yeah, I find my eyes drawn um, to the the bit at the end. So verse six, you know, this this point that gets retold or used in so much of the Christian tradition um, to harm women in particular, um, mm-hmm. this idea that like <laughs> sin comes through Eve. Right. Um, to like get away from that framing and actually just like take the text at its word. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so it's like actually sustaining life and that it was a delight to the eyes, you know, bringing joy and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, you know, this valuing of wisdom that she took of its fruit and ate. It's like that, that capacity to recognize what is good and to claim it. And then also to think about that she shares that, not to claim it as one's own, like, yes, I get the, the fruit, but it's like, I'm delighting in this. I want to share this experience. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's a like pro-pleasure reading, which is so opposite, again, of what so much of dominant Christianity is. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I want to think of her now as a forager. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> She knows her way around the plants and the trees and which things to eat of and which not to, which mercy. So many of us have unlearned all of that, sadly, and need to learn it again. And here we have this story where that's treated like a bad thing. And yeah. Right. Anyway, thank you. That's, that's fun. Well, I, I feel like, um, the ways you give attention to the non-human world as well has been helpful for me um, in reading texts like this and also just like engaging Mm -hmm. 
was about to say the natural world. I still am clunky with this language because it's like humans are a part of the natural world. Right, um, right. <laughs> um, but I, I, have, I think your ways of being in the world and of calling our attention to um, sort of like decentering human as like the pinnacle of creation um, also brings delight because it becomes a shared experience, not just like eating the fruit for our own sustenance, but like the, the text says it was a delight to the eyes. Like she's enjoying just seeing it, you yeah. know, being in the presence of trees and, and then to think about this, them being banished from the Garden of Eden, like as this disconnection from, um, from the earth, like that. If the call is back to Eden, wow. like oh. that's heaven. It's like the call is back to that deep connection that that we become alienated from. Yeah, it's. I've never thought of that. Yeah, it's like the first colonizing act of like separating non-human animals and human animals and land by force. Anyway, I just, that is a thing to be healed for sure. <laughs> I, and in fairness, I think to the, or why I imagine the story might've been told early on, I'm sure it was, yeah. by sure, I mean like, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up, um, but I'm sure it was a way of making sense of the world that has come to be like why isn't it that we can can't like have rest and enjoy creation like why do we why are we working the land why you know it, it, there's so much in this story that is ideological like trying to make explanations for origins like pain and childbirth it's like these are just things that people are experiencing and they're trying to make sense of them and it's like I don't I don't think like the people who were telling this story early on were like we're going to use this story to dominate people it's just like a way that they're making sense <laughs> of life. Yeah. It's, I think it's actually yeah. Christian retellings later, especially, you know, through this idea of original sin that then it becomes a particular tool of domination. It's like, yeah, why, why don't we long for that, that time of deep connection with, with the trees and the fruit and, and each other, <laughs> like our full yeah. bare selves. Yeah, yeah, we didn't even get to the nakedness, but we'll yeah. save that for another time. <laughs> uh, gosh, this is so rich. Thank you. Thank you for bringing your expertise um, and your like creative mind uh, and passion for. Um, engaging text in an ethical way. Um, yeah, it's been a treat. So much. I mean, I've, you are one of the people as a reader of the texts and uh, somebody who does sort of creative work to bring um, scriptures and like the larger traditions and the spirit alive. Um, I, I think you're somebody who has helped me feel freer to read in this kind of way and to experience the delight in sort of work so to have this opportunity to reflect here with you it's like this is this is good oh, it's so fun it's so fun thanks tyler thank you
Thank you for joining us for this mini bonus episode. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in and uh, just want to also give a quick shout out to Claire Hitchens, who is our editor for this episode, who also edited my prior episode on the Matthew text and edited the Ash Wednesday service, uh, sorry, the Ash Wednesday episode this week. So Claire has gone above and beyond for me, for us, um, and I just want to express my deep gratitude. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Claire. Be well, beloveds. Blessings on your Lenten journey and your engagement uh, with the text and all of their evolving messages for us and with us, um, inviting us into wrestling and becoming and blooming and building the world we wish uh, we wish to inherit and um, pass on to those who are yet to come. May it be so. Take care. I shine, yeah.